0: Welcome back to Comics Over Time, where we shine a spotlight on classic comic stories and the TV shows or big screen blockbusters they inspired. We'll look to connect the dots from the comic book panels to the moving pictures, examining where the adaptation followed the comics closely and where they decided to go their own way. And when we're done, we'll try and answer that most important of questions, who told the tale best? My name is Dwayne, and with me, as always, is my good buddy, Dan. Dan, how you doing?
1: Doing really well, Dwayne. It's been a crazy busy last couple of weeks, but I am excited to get back to watching and talking about some of these Marvel movies. So, it does feel a little bit like we're lost in time this week, though, as we are talking about a Spider Man movie this week, just Ah. like everyone else in America. Uh But we're not talking about the $120 million opening weekend blockbuster that is the Spider Verse sequel. We're going to get to that a little later on, but. This week we're actually going to be heading back to finish talking up the first MCU Spider-Man movie from back in 2017. It's called Homecoming, starred Tom Holland, and uh, it was in and of itself a good time. Yes, yes.
0: So We do have a lot to talk about. We're going to dive in and talk about some comic book news first. And the first story is, is one I saw on Gizmodo, an actual interview of J. Michael Straczynski. He's returning to Marvel for a new Captain America run. So, uh, starting in September, we're going to have a new Captain America book, and J. Michael Straczynski is going to be helming that. And it's really interesting because there's two stories that are interwoven: one from his time when he, uh, before he got the super serum, and is actually going up against the pro-Nazi movement in the US as well as a current story where he is fighting this new villain of supernatural origin uh, that is trying to basically take down the world so it is really interesting there's a great interview on Gizmodo about it we will link to it there was a an official Marvel release and I actually got to talk to J. Michael J. Michael Straczynski at Phoenix Fan Fusion and uh, told him that I'm really looking forward to this to this book. So uh, it was it was a lot it was a lot of fun.
1: Yes, I'm I'm very cynical about how this just accidentally became your piece of news this week. By the way, I yes, think I, just to I know. Make everyone else feel jealous hum- that you got to go and Humble hang out brag. at the comic convention. <laughs> but that is very cool. I also think it's going to be interesting and maybe. We're going to have a few people who will grumble because Straczynski's a very good writer and writing a story about a pre-Captain America, Captain America, sort of fighting the encroaching forces of fascism Uh back in the early, the the late thirties is probably going to be a little incendiary considering the state America's in right now. So it could, it could have a few scenes that hit a little close to home for some of us, I would suspect. Yes, he he actually talked about the. Uh,
0: there was a little bit of uh, contention, maybe a parallel that. or two. Well, he, he he said that there was a bit of concern over that idea uh, being portrayed in the book, uh, but that ultimately they just they got over it was what he said, and, and they're mm-hmm. going to let him do this, and and uh, he he seems yeah. excited about it, and I think it. There's apparently not a lot of stories revolving around after Steve Rogers' parents pass away and before he enlists and gets the the, the super serum and becomes Captain America. And so this is that time frame. Uh, he is going to be kind of dealing with the uh, American uh, people who are who are pro pro Nazi
1: and. and that's, mm-hmm. uh, the American Bund and all of those folks. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. I I actually don't know if I ever even realized that his parents died before he went, before, before he got the serum. I thought sure. for some reason that it's very possible they just died while he was in the ice. But yeah, it's going to be interesting. This does seem like it's a, a part of his life that hasn't been much dealt with. And Straczynski's a good writer. So should be interesting stuff.
0: So one other quick news story I think we do need to hit, and our our good friend of the podcast, Mo, pointed this out uh, to us. Jed McKay's Moon Knight Run is meeting its night's end. So we knew issue 25 was already going to be really important because Layla El-Fayul, who is from the TV series, was going to be introduced and debut as the Scarlet Scarab in an oversized issue, in issue 25 Mm -hmm. that's coming out in July. But now we also know that it is going to also be the start of the final story arc for Jed McKay as the lead writer for the ongoing title Moon Knight. Uh, We don't know how long that's going to last, but uh, I saw the tweet, the Moon Knight official Twitter account tweeted it, I went to the story. I it it did sort of look like it was uh, talking about Jed McKay ending his run, and I was but I wasn't a hundred percent sure. And then Games Radar basically posted a story saying the saying the same thing uh, within twenty four hours, and then it's like, oh no, the day that we were we were dreading Dan seems to be nearing very very soon
1: mm-hmm. can we just keep imagining that it's like a 50 issue arc and <laughs> sure. it's gonna take him four years to finish sure. it that's now I'm uh extremely happy with the work that McKay has done on Moon Knight he's done us all a great service as fans you know that for me when we started the Moon Knight podcast a couple years ago and I brought you in to learn about this character the fact that there's a, somebody with that much talent and that much sort of respect for the character who's been stewarding it all through this time when you've been learning about it, I think has really been a pretty substantial gift. And you don't necessarily get runs that are 20 issues, let alone it's going to be at least probably 30, because if he's 25 or so starts the final arc, he'll get us up to issue 30 or so. That's a really good pull for a no. modern-day character comic book artist writer team and capucho has been with him with a few you know break issues here and there for most of this so it's one of those where you can either sit around crying in your beer about the fact that your your favorite creators are moving on or you can just go we got lucky to have them as long as we did and i think that's that's kind of where we have to be on this but it but it is going to be sad
0: so the game's yeah. radar story that we're going to link to talks about the fact that there's a Batman run called the Knights and that ultimately sure. ends up leading to uh, a death and, yep. and like the replacement of a character. And speaking of the fact that we have a different fist of conchu in, in, in this story that we've been seeing since the beginning, there was some speculation by game's radar that we might, seeing the end of bark specter uh, by the time this series series might be over so that would be pretty pretty galling but um you know
1: that would be bold i don't i don't think i don't think that's what they're going to do i think I there's think a so. good chance they're probably going to kill off the other fist of conchu. i think that hunter's moon could be in trouble and if they kill tigra i'm just ripping up my, my Moon Knight comics and going off to, re- to read something else. I'm returning to my Legion comics from the 60s and giving up on modern comics if they do that. But excited, though. It's going to be fun. Looking forward to seeing Layla come into the comics. We'll see how it goes.
0: Uh, new on Marvel Unlimited this week, we have a couple different number ones available. We have Spider-Man Unforgiven, Murder World Game Over, Spider-Gwen, Shadow Clones, uh, Hallow's End, which is says it's from the pages of of Spider Man, and I Am Iron Man. Number one are all number ones that are debuting this week on Marvel Unlimited. You so if you're looking for something new to read, those are some good places to start. Dan, you got a recommendation for us for this week?
1: So I'm still recovering from graduations and all the rest, so I haven't been reading a lot of stuff for fun lately. But I have had time for audiobooks. Currently, I'm listening to a book called Wool, which is the first book of the Silo series, written by a guy named Hugh Howie. And the the title I'm listening to is Red by Eduardo Bellerini. It's actually a really excellent story. It's uh, I'm, like I said, only in the first book of the trilogy. Uh, and then there's a few other stories with it as well. Uh, it's excellent. It's very bleak. So it's not exactly an uplifting kind of thing. It's a very... Uh, end of the world dystopia type of type of thing but yeah i'm enjoying that it's also an apple tv series which apple tv absolutely murdered the foundation series which is my all-time <laughs> favorite sci-fi series and well, so i'm looking well, forward to seeing what they do to uh to the to the wool and silo series i'm sure it's going to be awesome so
0: i i liked foundation tv series i have not read the books so i can't speak to how badly they murdered the books but
1: uh, just as a note i would have liked foundation too if i hadn't read the books because it's a pretty good science fiction series it's just not foundation so there you go all
0: right that's gonna wrap it up for comic book news we've got a lot to talk about with spider-man homecoming so this is your spoiler warning. We're going to be talking about all things Spider-Man Homecoming. Yes, this is a movie that came out in 2017, so you've had a little bit of time to see the movie. But if you want to watch it again before hearing this discussion or, you know, just want to feel like you have this all in your head before before diving in, please stop listening now. Go watch the movie and then come back and we can talk at great length about Spider-Man's first full feature in the MCU. And with that, I'm going to jump into our film facts for Spider-Man Homecoming. The tagline for the film is homework can wait, the city can't. It was released July 7th, 2017. It has a runtime of 133 minutes. Box office take worldwide was just over $880 million. Domestically, it brought in just over $334 million. All of that on a budget of $175 million. It has an IMDb rating of 7.4 out of 10. The movie stars Tom Holland, Michael Keaton, Robert Downey Jr., Marissa Tomei, John Favreau, Jacob Batalon, and Zendaya. It is directed by John Watts with a screenplay credits going to Jonathan Goldstein, John Francis Daley, John Watts, Christopher Ford, Chris McKenna, and Eric Summers. So there is a lot of writing credits that went into this film. Uh, and those are your film facts for Spider Man
1: Homecoming. Usually, a lot of writers is not a recipe for success, but no, there you
0: go. It, it, it usually is not. But I I think they I, they did a good job, and, and frankly, I had just seen they just uh Goldstein and Francis Daly just were a part of the Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves movie that I really liked, yeah. and I had sure. forgotten that these two ha- had been a part of the first Spider Man homecoming film, and so. I'm like, oh, that makes that makes sense. And they did a, a bang-up job in this movie
1: as well. There you go. We went to that in theaters, liked it. The rest of the family, in fact, we have, we have relatives over, are downstairs watching that on Paramount Plus while we are doing our podcast this Sunday. There you go. So. Very there nice. Go. There's a lot of bullet points to this movie. Yes. So I'm going to read a little bit, and then we can talk about it, and we'll go on rather than doing a 17-minute recap or whatever. So things start out, actually, in the wreckage of New York where a guy named Adrian Toomes and his crew are cleaning up the Chitauri wreckage of the city after the big attack uh, from the Avengers movie. He loses his salvage rights to a company or an organization called Damage Control, headed by Tony Stark, and decides to go into business for himself, stealing and using alien technology. We then skip ahead eight years, and he's still at it, now equipped with a gigantic set of motorized mechanical wings. Peter Parker, meanwhile, has been adventuring off in Berlin with the Avengers. We get the start of the movie is kind of a, a home movie by Peter that basically yep. recaps the Civil War uh, parts of the Civil War movie that he was in. He actually gets a chance to go and meet Stark. They talk. He gets a suit upgrade from him. They talk about he fight Captain America upon returning home. He then is like, hey, when's our next mission? And he starts waiting for the Avengers to call him, wants to make sure he's ready and is available, even while going about his regular everyday life back in Queens, New York. At that point, we meet his friend Ned, his classmate Michelle, his enemy Flash, and his crush Liz. All right, so you get kind of your cast of characters and a little bit of a dropped in there. What do you think of the start?
0: I like the start, and I think the thing that surprised me about this movie, the first time i watched it is uncle ben doesn't die in in this movie this is this is not an origin story this is a story where he has had these he's been doing this for a little bit and uh you know i i did however like that kind of home movie video journal of peter's time going to Germany. Hanging yep. out with Happy and, and all of that stuff. Because it sort of felt like an origin story, but a much different story than the or actual origin story we're all so familiar with. And it, so, I mean, it was new. It, it felt new. Mm-hmm. It felt interesting. It was interesting seeing things from, from his point of view. Definitely feels like a kid. Oh, my gosh. There is, there is something about the fact that you, you could tell he is a kid. And he, and he, the, everything's just sort of coming at him at, at this. Yeah. And uh, I thought it I thought it was a very well done kind of beginning to this film because it really kind of draws you in. You you see uh, Adrian Toomes and you're wondering what is going to go on with him, and you see him taking some of the the alien technology bef- after getting kind of shoved out the door, and and it. It, it it was a very good setup, I
1: think, to this film. Yeah. It did get pretty sort of almost cringy at times with the beginning because he is so much a kid. They yeah. wanted to definitely play that up. But they did a good job of it. The, the fact that, yeah, they decided to have the confidence to simply let him debut in Civil War and start his story essentially by just banking on the fact that everybody has already watched a Spider-Man movie and knows what happened. So there have been like three Spider-Man series of movies in the last 20 years. Everybody in America should know what happened to Uncle Ben and how he got to where he's at. And they're just like, we're just going to move on from that. I like the fact that they spent that time building up some of the other characters. They brought in sort of, you know, a few a few characters and put them into different situations than they did before so those of us who knew the spider-man story are a little bit off base because there is no mary jane there's just michelle and there's liz who we think we know liz but we don't necessarily because we're not sure that this has ever been kind of the the dynamic that she's the two years older and is the you know the popular smart kid or whatever so a lot of these characters even ned same thing, you know. Yeah,
0: Flash is a little bit different than he is in the comics as well.
1: Flash is different than in the comics as well. He's he's still kind still a of bully's up and picks yeah. on
0: Peter, but he's he's not like he's not a, a jock. jock or anything. You
1: know? no, he's kind of like this uh, irritating rich kid now. He's a tech bro instead of being a jock <laughs> in the current bro. iteration, yes. right? A young a baby tech bro. So, yes. in any case. But, um, but we, we still
0: get we we still get some nods to that though the origin story. I mean, when late a little bit later on Ned actually sees uh, Peter come into the room into his room, you know, affixed nope. to the ceiling, and then his, Ned finds out and starts asking him a billion questions, and and he so he mentions the spider. You know, we have some some things says he's basically hiding from Aunt May what, that he's Spider-Man because of everything she's gone through yep. and so there, there's there's hints of it but there's not it's not in your face a major part of the story the way it has been in every other exactly. Spider-Man reboot that we've yep.
1: had yep, I like it so, so that kind of gets us set up we, we find our villain quick we find most of his friends and kind of a, an idea of who he is and what the status quo is And then away we go. Interestingly.
0: We want to talk about Tony Stark here. I thought we were. Oh,
1: sure. Go ahead.
0: Yep. The the one kind of change from, uh, I guess, not knowing, I guess, as many comics as you. I thought one of the interesting things they decided to do with the story here at the beginning is sort of make Tony Stark a mentor. To Peter Parker, and I don't know if he's ever played that role in in the comics, but he seems like the last guy that should be mentoring anybody, um, because there is, you know, Tony Stark is Tony Stark, and I mean, like the 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 meeting in the car where he basically drops him off after they get back from Germany, and he's like, "All right, now just don't do anything I would do." and definitely don't do anything I wouldn't do, there's this little bit of gray area in there, and that's where you're going to operate.
1: It's just like... I would say they took Tony Stark and put him into the Norman Osborn, like, bucket in the Spider-Man universe. Because in almost all of the other iterations of, like, the original 616 Spider-Man... Norman Osborn would be the guy who's the big tech genius who he ends up working at his company and takes him under his right. wing, and then of course that doesn't go quite so well actually in most cases. No, so no, it doesn't. But yeah, but but that's that's where he really did is they sort of they sort of merged the stories I think, and you know Peter needed that mentor, and they didn't want to necessarily deal with all of that, so they were able to bring to bring Iron Man in that helps because you get the star power to bring into the movie and it also makes the plot a lot easier so yeah
0: i i to to your point there there wasn't any mention of the Osborns at all in this this film and uh, i had not not even considered that uh when when you're talking about that and it's like you're you've got all this tech that he gets you know the the new upgraded suit and it especially goes crazy once he turns off the training wheels protocol and yep. it's 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 it does it it makes it easier especially like if you're not a big comic book fan right you don't have to explain another new character right now you could just take an yep. established character that's very popular that has launched your 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 cinematic universe and put him in here in this role and it makes a lot of sense
1: So that's kind of our lead-up, right? And then we got all our characters. So Peter at this point is very determined to be available when he's needed. So he quits his other activities and hobbies, uh, including the, uh, the relatively important uh, thing that he's supposed to be doing, which is the academic decathlon. It gets people a little bit grumpy at him. He eventually finds, though, that there are some real crimes out there. Uh, and in the process of trying to break up A crime where essentially a gang is ripping out an ATM and stealing the money. Right. He ends up sort of helping to destroy an entire local deli and just about get uh, one of the people in his neighborhood killed. He ends up getting his backpack stolen. He returns home. And when he does, he kind of like you mentioned, finds out that Ned is in his room waiting to finish a Lego set when he comes in and takes off his mask. And suddenly somebody knows his secret identity. This leads to an insufferable number of questions from his friend, and some embarrassing moments in the gym and at a party. Peter then sees an explosion while preparing to go to said party as Spider Man. He gets in a fight with some alien weapons dealers, scares a few children while running through a neighborhood at night while chasing the bad guys, ends up getting grabbed by the vulture, taken way up into the air, dropped. Gets tangled up in his own parachute, nearly drowns, and is saved by Iron Man, who's actually in, like, India or something, but is using Wi-Fi to control his armor and save the kid. Yep. So, the bad guys then track Peter back to his school while they're trying to recover tech that he'd found while chasing them the previous night, allowing him to put a tracker on them. Crooks head south. Peter joins his academic decathlon team on a trip to Washington, D.C. for a competition and continues to try hoping to track them. So the decathlon is down sort of where they were going. So he's like, I'll hop back on the team, knock Flash off, giving him more reason to hate me, and then I'll be able to get down to D.C. Peter then interrupts a robbery attempt by the Vulture's crew that night, ends up locked in a damage control facility, misses the decathlon, he does end up saving this team from imminent mortal danger at the Washington Monument, uh, making Spider-Man a hero in Peter's school, and is able to identify someone named Aaron Davis as one of the people in the arms deal under the bridge. He then finds out another deal is set for that day on the Saturn Island Ferry. The Vulture is there, as is the FBI, and Spidey accidentally starts a fight that results in the ferry being cut in half. A lot going on.
0: A lot, a lot going on. And... So I think I think at this point we should talk about Tom Holland because he feels like the Peter Parker Spider-Man from the comics. I I, I I've read review after review about this film and basically everyone tends to laud Tom Holland's performances as Peter Parker, as Spider-Man. He feels like a 15 year old kid and he's making decisions like a 15 year old kid. And he's getting the results that you would expect from a 15 year old kid making life and death sort of decision making. It is, it is actually quite, quite fantastic. And, you know, I reading about this Holland actually says he took inspiration from, from, toby mcguire and andrew garfield but he also wanted to bring something new and exciting with his take on the character specifically talking about dealing with the everyday problems of a 15 that a 15 year old has to deal with as well as some of the you know big problems of being a superhero and trying to save the city and and i think between the script and his acting he does that and, and it it's conveyed really well and and it just sort of feels like as you said as you talked about, it, it feels almost cringeworthy a little bit watching this kid do some of these things because you're just like, oh God, no, don't do that. That's that's a really, really bad idea.
1: Yeah. He makes questionable decisions. So yeah, the All of the previous Spider-Mans have been like college age. They've got work problems. They've got apartment problems. They've still got girlfriend problems, but it's a different kind of of an right. environment. This is really the first time in the movies we've seen them go with a younger version of Spider-Man like this. And it's kind of a bold choice. It's very true to the comics, but the movies had never really tried to go with a teenage Spider-Man, and, and I, like a, a high school teenage Spider-Man before. And so... Right. I liked it. I thought it was it was interesting. I will note that I enjoyed it more watching it with my kids. I think there is something about this that it definitely is a family movie. It is a like a a movie that is is directed almost at like the I don't know, the Disney Channel type of mm-hmm.
0: crowd. Well, I mean, they talk about this being a coming-of-age film, and, and I've never mm-hmm. necessarily loved that description. But at the same time, they there was apparently, like very early on before they really started uh, getting into the full-on principal photography, they did like a John Hughes movie night where the entire cast watched a bunch of John Hughes films. Uh, from like the 80s and stuff to kind of sure in, kind of to, to to speak to that whole coming of age thing and there does sort of feel like this is geared towards i don't want to it's geared towards i i think a younger audience necessarily than than say like all the other sort of mcu films i think i, I mean they're geared towards everybody like they're trying to hit as big a an audience base as possible but i feel like kind of that average age that they're hoping to really hit on is maybe a little bit younger but that's that mm-hmm. same audience that i think the spider-man comic was trying to hit on too right because they, it was what made yep. it popular potentially was the relatability of the of the main character of being this this kid this teenager getting superpowers and then doing what he could to save the city the, this yep. movie feels like it embodies that
1: i agree i think that it really does and so it is a a cool decision in terms of really just leaning into what the original comics were about i think I, that if you if you go back and look at who peter parker was in amazing in amazing fantasy 15 and spider-man one and two this is not that far off from that guy. No. You know? It really isn't. And in fact, uh, and then, of course, Ultimate Spider-Man similarly. it's It's got yes. kind of the same sort of feel to it. So when, when last we left the story, to get back to it, the Staten Island Ferry had been cleft in two as though it were some sort of, I don't know, taco, and was sewed back together by Tony Stark, right? uh uh-huh. um, Once that's done... This whole botched uh, situation in which actually Spider-Man had told Tony about this. Tony had called in the FBI and was going to have it taken care of. And Spider-Man kind of not telling him what he's doing, sneaking in and messing with everything, causes Iron Man to actually take his fancy suit back from him that he'd given him as the equipment upgrade. So, you know, I don't think you're ready. Peter's like, I'm nothing without the suit. And then he's like, well, then you're just nothing. Which is an interesting sort of way to do it because now the rest of the way he doesn't have the suit, which I really like. I didn't like the idea they gave him the big tech because that's not Spider-Man. So now he gets the tech, he gets it taken away. We're in that dark tea time of the soul moment. And now from here on, he's going to have to go back to his weird little Halloween costume and just him his own powers and his own inventions to to save the day, right? Yep. So he returns to his normal life, doing Lego, going to school, actually getting up the, the uh, gumption to ask out Liz to the homecoming dance. Meanwhile, a desperate tombs is actually starting to talk to his guys, and he decides he's willing to try a heist that he was previously leery of. They don't tell us any more about that. They can leave it for now. We do, though, find out that next, Peter actually goes to Liz's house to go to homecoming with her, and who opens the door? But her dad, who also happens to be the Vulture. So, quick note to comics fans: No, you're not losing your mind. In actual fact, Liz's dad is not the Vulture, but this <laughs> is the comics, right? I
0: did not think so, but yep, you know, it makes Toom's for there. a wonderful scene
1: holy A, cow yes and thoroughly thoroughly unlikely might we add that you know out of the billions of fathers and billions of daughters his archenemy and his girlfriend are father and daughter but there you go in any case he drives them to the dance and while doing so liz and peter are talking And he actually pieces together from that conversation that Peter is actually the Spider-Man that's been causing him this trouble all along. At the end of that, they end up having a very tense visit after Liz has left the car, where he essentially sits there with a gun in hand, saying he's going to kill him.
0: That's the dad talk, he calls it.
1: Yeah. Oof. That
0: that, that is unlike any dad talk I think I've ever been a part of.
1: So let's talk Michael Keaton. Here, what did you think That's, of his performance, both in the car and then overall as the vulture?
0: Michael Keaton is probably one of the best parts of this film. He is a better version in any way, shape, or form of the vulture. He 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 is perfect from from day from job one, like right at the very beginning. You you see this this character, and it's interesting because like he is. One of, the, one of the things that we saw from the vulture in the comics is just like he's just this old guy that wants to do wants to steal things right but like Michael Keaton takes and and with the story takes and kind of makes him that kind of gray character we've talked about this we talked about this kind of with Gore the God Butcher where it's like there's some relatability here with this character you know, he's a regular guy. He's just trying to provide for his family. He's getting kicked off jobs that he, you know, overextended himself to try and get, uh, because some rich guy wants to have his own people working on it, and and he ends up doing some ethically and morally questionable things to provide for the family. But you know, it's the you know, where's mine? Why, why not me? That he kind of pulls in, and it's, it's so good. And that scene with Parker, and and Toomes in, in, during during the lead up to Liz, uh, showing up in there and the picture thing and then the drive. It was it was tense, and I I think it's one of the best parts of the film.
1: So. Somewhere in there. You created an analogy that makes Gore the God Butcher some sort of relatable normal guy. By the way, which no, I, I didn't. I'm going to have to. No, I'm going I, to have to say, <laughs> it's probably ta- it's probably not accurate.
0: No, we talked about the fact that there are there are characters that are just bad guys, right? Yep. That are black. Black and you know black and white bad guys. They're they are there specifically for to be the foil of the good guy, and 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 it's really easy from a story standpoint. Yep. There are bad guys that ultimately are characters that are more complex. They're more interesting. They make mm-hmm. they. They start down a road that you can relate to, and then they take it too
1: far. Just drive right off the cliff to crazy. Yep. And yes. I that's think what that, I'm talking about. I think that that's one of the things I like most about him in the character is that he starts out as just a relatively normal guy who's trying to make a buck, and he's got government contracts. And when Damage Control comes in, you know, kind of like we read the comic last year, that or last week, the whole point is really to keep all of this alien tech away from guys who might decide to sell it like Toomes does. So, you know, the he's almost a case study in why you don't want those guys to have it. Because would it have corrupted him anyways where he's like, man, there's a lot of money to be made from this. But once he starts... He's just so ruthless. And he doesn't really necessarily intend to be evil. But when he does end up shooting a guy and vaporizing him, he doesn't really get all that upset. He's like, oops, I used the wrong gun. I thought yeah. I was just going to levitate him with the anti-grav gun. You know, he it, he does it, just go full bad guy.
0: Yeah, if, you, if you've if you ever watched Breaking Bad, I think of him a lot like Walter White. From that show, it's I'm doing this thing. I'm I'm cooking meth to provide for my family after I'm gone, and then suddenly two seasons later, he's Heisenberg, and is like the bad guy. He's wiping out rival drug cartels and all this other thing. It is it, it it's an amazing thing to watch, actually, because it, it, like I think it takes a really really well crafted character a good story but it also takes a really good actor and and i and i think they did all of those things here just just like they did with with, with uh, brian cranston and, and breaking bad
1: yeah that that's probably on an entire another level of subtlety and the like yeah sure, but, sure, but nonetheless sure. i agree with you and the the other thing i liked was the subtlety with which they did a lot of things that really took a character that was almost a joke character in the comics, because you saw right. the vulture and his yes. costume in the comics, right? Yeah, he's like this weird bald guy, and he's got the big feathered plume, and he looks like a condor, uh-huh. or you know, he's he's got the vulture thing. Absolutely ridiculous. At no point looking at the vulture in this movie did i think wow he's just ridiculous he wow. looks fearsome because the thing the wings are so huge and loud and and just massive that you you really just get that feeling of space and of power out of them and then even when he's out there he's got his leather coat with the big sort of fluffy collar yeah but it's yep, not yep, enough that the, it looks ridiculous. It's just kind the of the big fur plume, almost. Yeah, yeah, it's the big Arctic, Arctic fur, uh, fluff kind of collar, which is a cool way of bringing in that look from the comic, without overdoing it. Same with the first Shocker; they gave him kind of the same colors and the same sort of, uh, costuming material, like the, the, uh, padded kind of jacket type stuff. Made it immediately visible if you know the look of the shocker that that guy was supposed to be him without really you even having to be told. So yeah.
0: So so the interesting thing about this character that he's playing and I, and I didn't even think about this until I read, was reading about it is John Watts talking about uh, the tombs character and becoming the vulture. He wanted him to be a regular guy. And, and part of that was to help him avoid drawing the attention of the Avengers. like this, yep. this guy, despite the fact that he was selling alien technology was and was stealing even from him, he wasn't on the radar, really. And it also provides someone that Parker is able to defeat while still learning to use his abilities. And I hadn't even considered that, but that makes a lot of sense. If he's going up against someone like Thanos... Or Gore the God Butcher, or any of those sorts of characters, there is no way this spider mans going to be able to defeat them. Mm-hmm. But if you're talking about a regular guy that's using alien technology to provide for his family, even if he is sort of kind of off the deep end as far as like moral, you know, yeah. ethically and moral decision making, he's he's still it's a it's a reasonable fight. Right. And it and it would make sense that that, that Spider-Man could potentially defeat him.
1: Yeah. Well, I can see that. So let's see. Let's see what happens, because right now he hasn't defeated him, though. So don't don't tell right. anybody what's going to happen, Dwayne. They get done with their visit and Spider leaves the car and goes into the dance, at which point then he immediately deserts his friends and his date and rushes off after tombs, knowing that somehow or another he's got to stop him. He is immediately attacked by the new shocker, the guy who picked up the shocker tech after the other guy got vaporized. Uh, that guy assaults him with a number of buses until Ned saves the day with the web slinger. And then Urk uh, kind of earns his spot as Spidey's guy in the chair, which is what he'd been wanting all along. At that point, Spider-Man and the Vulture face off in Tomb's Lair after Spidey tracks him using a spider tracer that he has. He begins then, uh, or at their, their face-off sort of begins with Tombs doing his own villain monologue. And it ends with Tombs bringing in his wings and actually cutting the cement supports of the entire building and crashing the building down on Peter. He then takes off to intercept the plane that's moving uh, the Avengers stuff from their old headquarters in Stark Tower over to their new one out of town. Peter tags along, uh, kind of just hooking onto the ankle of the... Uh, the Vulture eventually manages to wreck the plane and crash it into the beach while surviving the Vulture's attacks. The two of them then have one final battle in which Peter eventually ends up saving Tombs and after which Damage Control and Happy arrive just a little bit late to find everything, including the Vulture, wrapped up and waiting for them. Peter then has a last awkward talk, conversation with Liz who's leaving the state. We find out that Michelle is called MJ by her friends. Tony offers him a spot in the Avengers Peter turns him down, returns home to find that he has now been yet again re-given the spider suit that Tony had taken away from him, puts it on, and finds out that Aunt May is actually watching because his door is open. What the F is how this movie ends? And that is how it ends. So, what do you think of the wrap-up, sir?
0: It 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 was a very, very good third act, mcu third act we had lots of explosions we had lots of action the the like invisible plane they're fighting in midair as he's trying to steal some more tech uh from from the uh the plane that's heading up to upstate new york and he he saves tombs like Ooh. after they're after it's all said and done. Dooms is still sort of in the wreckage and the wreckage is about to explode and he goes running in and and saves saves him and then you know spidey webs him to a to a piece of non-exploding shrapnel and uh has him waiting for for happy and mm-hmm. damage control when they arrive yep it it, and- it 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 feels like it feels like a it feels like a comic book ending
1: and to Toomes' credit, he also had the ability to have pierced up uh, Spidey pretty well because he had him down and chose not to kill him as well. So right. I think that yeah. the other he, interesting he went thing, for
0: the tech. He went for the tech. He yep. he he provided. He's like, I'm doing this to provide for my family. He could have killed Spider-Man and then sees the tech in the distance and is like, leaves him and goes to grab the tech.
1: No, yep. I think that and then even you know later on when he's in the prison the fact that he doesn't just give up peter's name he is when it comes down to it he's evil but he's not going to kill if he doesn't have to and he might not really want to kill at all unless he he'll threaten but other than the one person he accidentally vaporized he never actually killed anybody during the movie now he it's not to say he's a good guy because no. <laughs> he, he made lots and lots of horrific weapons which were going to kill lots of people. But as he said, Tony Stark does that all the time too. And you know he's on the cover of magazines. All right, so we've reached the end. Uh, some of it was a little bit on the, the path side. Some of it was a little bit on the long side. This was a very long movie. Uh, wow. they got a lot done but it seemed like there were certain things like the whole set piece on the washington monument and the like that that was about 20 minutes of adventure that i don't know how much it necessarily had to be there they're like it can be there right yeah. uh, the only thing it, it really gave to the plot was was peter being able to have a way to get out of town right you know and so they they did i think really decide to just use as much time as they wanted. And I remember that I was still at the point then where I'm like, every additional minute they want to give me of superhero CGI and special effects and story is fine by me. Let's go two and a half hours. Let's go three hours. I'm now starting to, I think because there's so much of it be a little more like, you know, next week and the week after I've got another one of these let's let's get this moving uh-huh. give me an hour and a half and let me get about my week so I can get ready to go to the next one next Friday right and and they don't seem to be getting shorter either they don't <laughs> they really don't
0: there, there definitely felt like there were minutes of this film that could have been trimmed here and there that could have uh, sped up the Mm-hmm. Us getting from beginning to end, and yep. and like you, I think I think in my initial seeing this in the theater, I was I was for every single minute of this film, yep. but watching it again now, after having seen a bunch of other superhero films, it 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 felt like it drug a little bit, it, it and it's not due to Tom Holland, it's not due to Michael Keaton, it just it felt like there was a little bit of bloat in the story. Yep. that That, you know, some some directors and producers could have potentially trimmed a little bit of it off, and, and it still would have made
1: sense. I absolutely think that even him being locked in the damage control facility, how long did that go on for? You know, there were a bunch 37 of 37
0: minutes, apparently, despite the fact the montage felt like it was days. Yeah.
1: There you go. So yeah, it uh, it was it was interesting. There were a lot of of kind of weird diversions that may or may not have needed to be what they were. but at the time it all worked. and And even now, I never really got bored with it. I just at times was like, they could have used a little bit more of a tight editing plan on on this element or whatever. So one of the other things, by the way, and this comes out of the Avengers movie. But just as a note, Marissa Tomei as Aunt May, st- still very weird for me. What? That is not you you read the comics, you saw yes. Aunt May. Very different vision of Aunt May, right? So that that took a little bit of getting used to. I know kind of why they would have done such a thing. It actually makes sense. Why Peter's aunt would have been that old? You know, it should have been his grandma. May probably technically otherwise, because he's a 15-year-old kid with like a 65, 70-year-old aunt. How does that even work? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense, so,
0: right? <laughs> there's got to be a big age gap. <laughs> there's there's uh, got to be an explanation for that, there. right?
1: Yeah. So I find I find it makes perfect sense that you'd have somebody Tomei's age instead. I'd never thought about that before, though. So it's one of those. Now we're looking back on the comics. I'm like, that was yeah, some weird, weird math, you know. Anyway, I'm still happy to see Marissa Tomei anytime. So my cousin Vinny's one of my all-time favorite movies, and she's she's a really good actress Fan- to have. Fantastic. I hope the us. MCU keeps her around forever, and nothing bad happens to her. <laughs> because that would that sure. would suck.
0: Sure. Yes, that would be bad. All right, let's talk about some tidbits about Spider-Man Homecoming that I was able to find. So we, we always talk about the, uh, the code name or working title of the film. Uh, principal photography for this film started June 20th, 2016 in Pinewood, Atlanta Studios in Fayette County, Georgia. And the working title of the film at that point was Summer of George. That seems to be one of the weirder names that I think we've
1: seen as far as uh, working titles of films. Yep. And the only thing I could find on that is that there is an episode of Seinfeld called The Summer of George, where he gets fired by the Yankees and then just sort of lays around and has this weird idle time with nothing going on. And maybe it's Peter Parker is George Costanza after the Avengers never keep calling and he's just hanging around causing trouble all summer. I don't actually know. Sure.
0: Proceed. Sure. That's that, that. Seems as good a reason as any. I noticed some music, a little bit of music difference during the Marvel Studios logo. Yeah, uh, it is an orchestral version of the classic Spider-Man theme song from 1967 it was written by Paul Francis Webster and Bob Harris for the animated TV show and it was adapted by composer uh, Michael Guccino I loved hearing it I absolutely loved hearing it and I think we hear a few notes of it during that Washington Monument scene there too it it, uh, yeah, felt felt right that it was there no, that's very cool. Michelle's literary tastes contain some subtle clues as to the plot points or to spiders. I don't know if you noticed this. So, I Around 26 minutes off. in, she is first seen reading of Human Bondage by W. Somerset Wogham. In the novel, the protagonist is an orphan living with his aunt and uncle. Uh, later... Uh, She is seen reading Invitation to a Beheading, uh, which in that novel, a condemned man awaits his execution, accompanied only by a spider in his cell. And then about uh, finally during the Washington Monument scene, she is wearing a Sylvia Plath t-shirt. Plath wrote a poem called Spider and used spiders as images in other poems. So I've I thought that was really interesting, and it always speaks to, we talk about some of the like subtlety and the little like details that, that are thrown into movies in general, but specifically MCU movies, and, and I just thought that the, the call-outs in here were, were,
1: were quite something. I will tell you that I, I missed all of that. I would have had no yeah, idea. Same, same. That's, that's crazy. Very cool, but crazy.
0: One of the items Spider-Man finds in that damage control storage facility was actually Ultron's head yep. from the age of Ultron, 2015. He pulls it out of a bag. And then I really liked this. It said the homecoming part of the title could potentially be a nod to the inclusion of the character within the Marvel
1: Cinematic Universe. I don't think that could be a nod. That's the whole point of there <laughs> being a homecoming dance. And so they can call it homecoming because that's what it is. It's bringing, it's bringing Peter Parker back into the fold into Marvel studios, being able to actually get one of their key characters back where they can play with him and keep Sony from doing stupid things with him, And that's the whole point.
0: We, We could spend a whole hour or more talking about the logistics of the agreement and how it has changed, uh, between sony and marvel with regards to getting this film made there was some emails that came out back in 2015 talking about potentially allowing for this to happen and it sort of nixed the deal for a little while it is a whole convoluted mess and we we can i i wanted to at least acknowledge it but there is so much to this the the wiki page talking about all this is just pages and pages of things Mm -hmm. because there was just a lot going on back and forth and agreements and, and then backs pedals and all this sort of thing. And if you're, if you're interested in remembering everything that happened with to get this film made, I, I think it's interesting if you're, if you're into that kind of inside baseball sort of thing, but. It's way too much to talk about here.
1: in our And it wasn't done after this one either, because even after the first film, then you have at some point Holland even got involved where he's like, man, you guys really got to get this done because I want to do Spider-Man movies. And it was at the point where I think he was kind of in a situation where he wouldn't be able to do the movie unless they agreed because he was locked into the, the current thing. So Sony would have had to go their own way with a different Spider-Man. And he's like, I don't nobody wants that. Especially me. Let's get this figured out. So yeah. Wanna talk about some uh
0: references to the comics in the movie, Dan?
1: Man, there were so many. So many of them. You've got quite a few here. Uh, you found a lot of them. I've got it. That was pretty cool.
0: I've got a few, and then we could talk about some that you saw as well. The first one that jumped out to me is Phineas Mason, who is kind of the right-hand man of Adrian Toomes. I'm like, after the reading last week, I'm like, man, this guy, he feels like the Tinkerer. And sure enough, in the credits, he is Phineas Mason slash Tinkerer. So the Tinkerer, one of the very first villains that we saw in The Amazing Spider-Man last week. Uh, He builds weapons out of the damage control, things like the Shocker Gauntlet, and actually we find out the Shocker Gauntlet came up from uh, some of the wreckage that was pulled from Lagos after Mm -hmm. that whole thing, uh, beginning of Captain America's Civil War where Captain America fights Crossbones, ends up leveling a building with some Wakandan delegates in it as well. And so the Shocker Gauntlet was actually built out of the crossbones
1: gauntlet that he
0: used in that battle.
1: Yep, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we, really when you when you think about it, the Amazing Spider Man number two is huge for this movie because right. both the Tinkerer and the Vulture first appeared in that. So That's right,
0: that's right. Mm-hmm. They were
1: both in that same issue.
0: Uh, you you mentioned the, the Shocker. We actually had two versions of Shocker. Mm-hmm. Uh, Herman Schultz, the original Shocker, was actually one of was actually the second Shocker that that we saw, or the guy that gets the gauntlet after the first guy gets vaporized, and Jackson W. Bryce, who was known as Shocker in the Spectacular Spider Man from two thousand eight was that first shocker that we saw that does in fact get vaporized.
1: There you go. So, yep. And again, I love the way they just subtly sort of made the costume very resonant of the original shocker costume, which again, a lot of the early Spider-Man costumes are ridiculous if you look at them in the comics. So finding a way to make it look cool is, is difficult. If you really think about it the spider-man costume itself is ridiculous and being able to make it look cool on a big movie screen is in and of itself a real skill and they did a great job with that i think
0: this is actually the first spider-man movie to reference various elements regarding the web fluid for spider-man's web shooters from the original comic comics yep. The first nod is the Spider-Man mentions that the web fluid lasts for two hours before it resolves or dissolves after it's been fired, whereas in the comics it would last for an hour before it dissolved. The second nod to the comics is the taser web, which is a reference to how Spider-Man has created different variations of his formula for the web fluid at different points in the comics to create different types of webbing, often to deal with situations where regular web fluid
1: was not enough yep and in a lot of the previous movies that was not the case because if you remember you know, toby mcguire making a mess of his room with all of the webbing that he's, yeah. he's shooting and yeah. everything so this returns to the way the comics did it for the most part there were times where spider-man got organic webs but for the most part in the comics he's always used His technology. He's always used actual web web fluid shooters, like uh, like he does in the comic or in the movie. Here,
0: so Peter's homemade Spider-Man costume, very similar to Ben Riley's first Spider-Man costume from the comics. A red jumpsuit with blue sleeveless hoodie, with a belt and web shooters on the outside of the costume. I'm not real familiar with Ben Riley's version of 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 Spider-Man, but that. uh, I think I I think I've seen a picture, and that does uh, that definitely reminds me
1: of, of that. Yeah, that's a scarlet spider. He started kind of later. It's one of the one of the many mans across the the multiverse. So he's a, a clone of Peter Parker, and kind of has his own story. Starting out, Peter Parker has had kind of that homemade suit is sort of where things start in in a lot of the iterations so it's not that unusual yeah
0: in this movie we have the first appearance of cindy moon uh, better known as in the comics as spider-man's female counterpart silk
1: what did i miss this
0: she 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 is one of the one of the kids on the the debate team i I
1: believe really but she is yes Okay. Silk has become a very popular character. That, that would be really cool to see them actually expand out if, and get a few more of the live action If they do something with that, that would, be, that,
0: mm-hmm. would be, that would be great. Uh, Aunt May's car number plate is AMF 1562. AMF for Amazing Fantasy, 15 being the issue number that Spider-Man first appeared, and 62 being 1962, the Look at that. Aren't they and tricky? one final one final thing. There is an homage to The Amazing Spider-Man number 33, where Spy- where Parker is trapped underneath rubble, which is something that Kevin Feige, quote, wanted to see in a film for a very, very long time. And John Francis Daly talked about adding that scene into the film, saying, we want Parker... We have Parker starting the scene with such self-doubt and helplessness in a way that you can really see the kid. You feel for him. He's screaming for help because he doesn't think he can do it. And then he kind of realizes that that that's been his biggest problem. And Mm -hmm. He then lifts the roof that has fallen onto him off and then proceeds to pursue the vulture for that final showdown on the
1: Yep. That's a huge issue of Spider-Man. That is one of the sort of the key issues in his development and by this time Steve Ditko was doing most of the plotting and really was doing the stories and there's a lot that I think I talked a little bit about the book that, that talks about Ditko's stuff called Mysterious Travelers and he talks a lot about that about that scene in 33 and how it kind of is is just about somebody having to sort of find that within themselves and take that responsibility and it's a real step up for Spider-Man in Ditko's opinion mm. where he sort of yeah. accepts just how much power he really has because Spider-Man has traditionally been someone who people underestimate because he's a kid or whatever but again, right. you know, like when you watch Civil War, the fact that you know, the the um, the Winter Soldier just punches him, and he stops it with one hand, and he's just like, "Hey, what a cool arm!" You get those little ideas that this guy just has way more, way more resilience and power than is reasonable, or than you would think from from the appearance of him. So, I I, I love the cover of thirty three is Spider Man sort of in that rubble and the like, and it's very obvious from the very beginning when you see that scene and the way he is that they intentionally patterned that after that comic which is awesome that makes total sense
0: do you have do you have some references to the comics you wanted to
1: mention um main thing i wanted to note i guess i uh, got a list here of a few things spider tracers they are a real thing spider-man's used these for years he flings his little tracer on people and then can okay. chase them around so that is that is definitely something out of the comics. Matt Gargan, uh, the guy that we see that he's trying to, that the vulture is trying to do the deal with on the boat. and oh, the, the gets guy arrested that he and, doesn't reveal. Yep, and at the end he's got like uh, his, his faces. Scar. He's actually the scorpion. So that's also a setup for another... Another plot or something in the future if they want it he first off is a scorpion he later ends up being a symbiote he's got the venom thing going and then he for a while is the spider-man of Norman Osborn's Avengers so Mac Gargan's got a long and checkered history in the in the main comics universe Aaron Davis who we see during the uh, the scene under the bridge and then again at the car is going to be seen as well in the spider-verse so if you watch the first spider-verse movie where Miles morales has the cool uncle her tunes out to be the villain called the prowler so that's actually the character that donald glover is playing in this one which again means that the setup is there for you know not only to bring the prowler in but also when he talks about hey you know i want you to catch these guys because i've got an i've got a nephew in the neighborhood well that nephew is Miles Morales, right? Oh. So. Wow. Mm-hmm. Small world, as they it, say. It is indeed a small world. Um, Liz is Liz Allen. And that is a character, again, who's been around for a long time. She was sort of a romantic interest for Peter for a while. Ended up marrying Harry Osborn. All sorts of bad things have happened to her over the years, as with most of the Spider-Man characters. But. Obviously, her origin and everything like that got changed a bit to make her the daughter of the Vulture. But there's there's been a Liz in Spider-Man's extended friend circle since almost the beginning. That's really the ones I had, I guess. So, right, it's a lot there. I think I think
0: we've covered, and they <laughs> had plenty of time to put a lot of references to the comics in there,
1: and they it looks like they succeeded. All right. So, all right, Dwayne, with that, we come to our our every two-weekly face-off, where we've read some comics, we've watched a movie, and we get to take a look and see who did this best, who told sort of the story of young high school Spider-Man best. Is it Brian Bendis and Mark Bagley with Ultimate Spider-Man, number one through seven, or is it Spider-Man Homecoming? with Tom Holland from
0: 2017. All right. So two weeks ago, I think I surprised you by saying I liked the comic better comics, better than the movie. Yep. I'm sorry to say, I'm not going to do this two weeks in a row. I I'm going to give the edge to Spider-Man homecoming. I think it's because Holland and Keaton in this film are just so fantastic and I, and i think the script is does something a bit unconventional in that they don't do an origin story they take and make actually good characters out of some questionable villains and set up what ends up being i think one of the more successful mcu trilogies so far of 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 in the mcu and it's the Brian Michael Bendis. I read a bunch of those books. Those books were great. I enjoyed them immensely. I think that there is I I just liked the Spider-Man homecoming movie just a little bit more. And I and I really liked the inclusion of of Tony Stark in here. I think it makes a lot of sense. And it just I I'm gonna give the edge to the movie.
1: There you go. I I understand. I have a tough time with this. I did enjoy the movie a lot. And I think that they both are good examples of comic book superhero stories told for a very general audience. And it's hard to really like vote against the Holland Spider-Mans just because they are so entertaining i mean they're they're light right but to a certain extent especially early on the bendis ultimate spider-man is also relatively light it's it kind of just breezily retells the tale and later on it actually gets a lot more sort of meat on the bones as it moves through i may surprise you this week by admitting that i think that the the movie probably is actually a better a better way of going about it. Partly also because like you said, it didn't just retell things. It kind of took off and told a new story. Where Ultimate Spider-Man, for all of its originality, was still, especially in those early issues, largely just building, you know, reskinning the lead Ditko issues. So right. fine, I shall agree with you this week. The movies the movies win.
0: <laughs> it does happen sometimes. Yes, we got an email uh, from a listener named Amanda who actually is going through our phases of the Moon Knight podcast from over over a year ago uh, that we that we finished up that run and uh, really very very nice note. Thank you, Amanda. That I know this is late in the game and you probably won't read this, but I've been catching up on your podcast for a couple weeks now. Today you reached the first MCU episode, and I literally clapped my hands in delight. I can't remember ever doing that before in my life.
1: Yeah, what, what I love about this is, you know, when we we've, when we've finished up on Moon Knight, I think we kind of figured we'd move to this one, and we weren't sure what would happen to those. It's actually kind of amazing that there's still a lot of people going through and listening to the Moon Knight podcast, sort of from the start and, and catching up with us. And I love that Amanda's doing really what we'd hoped, which is it sounds like she had some interest in the Moon Knight character, wanted to learn more about that character, and found our podcast and us going through and and developing that love of Moon Knight. The same thing I kind of wanted to be able to give to you. Now she's kind of getting some of that as well. And that is absolutely just fantabulous to me. I'm, I'm like, this is exactly the reason... Why I wanted to start Moon Knight, you know, the phases of the Moon Knight in the first place, with you. We're going to leave that up, at least for uh, for the near future here, so that people can can keep going back and listening to them and enjoying them.
0: We still have a few more comics to talk about as Jed McKay wraps up his run, like we talked about at the beginning of the
1: episode. Absolutely.
0: All right, Dan, we have finished with Spider Man and Spider-Man Homecoming. So where what
1: what's up next for us? So one of us specifically requested that we take a look at a DC movie this next week. So we are going to get ourselves ready for The Flash, which comes out on the 16th of June, correct? Is that right? Yes. Yes. And it comes out on the 16th of June. So next week, we are going to take a look at comics from the Flashpoint run of The Flash. We're going to look at Flash Volume 3. We could read all of these, but we're going to read 8 through 12, which are kind of the lead up to Flashpoint. Then we're going to read the main Flashpoint series, number 1 through 5. This will leave Dwayne completely lost because Flashpoint has approximately 500 issues spread across the entire DC publishing realm. But, oh,
0: fantastic.
1: But you can get a small idea of what's going on in the story by reading Flashpoint. It's not that bad. But there are a lot of tie-in issues to this. So we're going to just read the main one and call it good.
0: It is weird. It he Dan is talking about the fact that I specifically asked for us to watch to go to this movie next, I will also tell you I know absolutely nothing about the Flash, and the main reason I want to see the Flash is because we have Michael Keaton and Ben Affleck returning to their role, their roles of Batman for this movie, and there's been a lot of talk about the uh, the Flash TV series and the kind of up in the air of Ezra Miller continuing in that role now that James Gunn is heading DC Studios so i i i wanted to get a little bit of knowledge about kind of the current version of the flash before it might completely change uh in the in the future
1: yeah well complete change is what the flash is about and that's what we're going to be looking at so I'm not going to have you read a bunch of early origin of the Flash stuff. We're not going to read the Flash rebirth stuff. We're not going to read any of these other sort of intro to the Flash type of things. I'm going to hope that you can just kind of accept he runs really fast and dive into Flashpoint. And if, there we go. If you're lost, I, I think I know. could do that for a week. So my reasoning for this, by the way, is from everything I've seen. I believe the most important information you can get going into that movie is what the heck is Flashpoint? Because I believe that the Flash movie is, in essence, the Flashpoint story being told on film. Gotcha.
0: All right. I am looking forward to getting a little bit of knowledge ahead of going to the movie. And with that, that is going to wrap it up for us for this week. We'd like to thank you all for joining us. If you're new to the podcast, please consider subscribing on your podcast player of choice. That way you'll get each new episode as soon as it's released. If if you're new to the podcast or you've been with us from the beginning, we'd love to get your thoughts on the show, on Spider-Man, on Spider-Man Homecoming. Maybe you've seen Across the Spider-Verse. Don't give us any spoilers because... We haven't seen it yet, but we'd love to hear from you. You could send those comments via email. That address is comments at comicsovertime.com, or you can reach out to us via Twitter. We are at comics overtime there. Dan, thank you for taking a side trek over into DC for the flash coming up here in a couple weeks. Thank you for giving me some books that can potentially shed some light on a character I know absolutely nothing about. I look forward to talking with you about the character next
1: week. Yep, it's going to be fun. We'll see you all in seven short days. Take care, folks.